BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Priya David Clemens, in for Alexis Madrigal. Depression and anxiety have been skyrocketing in America in recent years. According to a Gallup poll, nearly 30% of adults have been diagnosed with depression at some point. At the same time, there's a serious shortage of mental health care providers. A new set of artificial intelligence tools are rolling out to address this gap bringing with them the potential to vastly improve patient access and combat disparities in quality of care. We consider the promise and perils of deploying new AI tools in mental health care. That's all coming up next, right after the news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens, in for Alexis Madrigal. Artificial intelligence is entering our lives in all sorts of ways these days, but are we ready for it in places that seem to demand the human touch? We're talking about the use of AI in mental health care. Chatbots are already talking with patients on apps, and AI language analysis is diagnosing patients. Joining us to wrap our heads around how AI is used in mental health now, how it might be used in the future, and the risks and promise of all of this, first is Lloyd Miner, the dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. Dean Miner, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Priya. It's great to be with you. And also we have Betsy Stade, clinical psychologist and an incoming postdoctoral researcher also at Stanford. Betsy, good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. We're so glad to have both of you. Uh, Dean Miner, I'd like to start with a program that you initiated at Stanford this summer. It's a joint initiative between the Stanford School of Medicine and the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, and it's called RAISE Health. RAISE stands for the Responsible AI for Safe and Equitable Health. Tell us about this initiative and why Stanford decided to launch it. 
Well, thank you, Priya. And as you said in, in your introduction, uh, we're witnessing a lot of changes in our lives coming about because of AI. Uh, and the application of AI to health and healthcare is not new. And even if we look at, as I know we'll be talking about this morning, uh, the application to mental health, for example, in for many years, uh, we've been making the transition to ordering uh, medications uh, through uh, electronic mechanisms rather than writing them out on prescriptions. This has enabled us to check for errors, to prevent things like transposing a decimal place, and it's enabled, it's dramatically reduced the number of medication errors uh, in the prescribing realm. So there are already some good and appropriate uses for AI, but with the advent and the introduction of generative AI and large language models, this opens both tremendous opportunities and also tremendous challenges to make sure that generative AI is used in a responsible and ethical way. One of our goals with Raise Health is not to try to impede the progress of the technology because historically that doesn't work. It's how to develop the mechanisms, how to involve all of us in looking at the capabilities of generative AI and then to harness those capabilities in a responsible, safe, an equitable way. And as we're discussing this, we know that artificial intelligence has applications across a wide range of healthcare possibilities. But this morning, we're really focusing on mental health care and the need to address the gap between the, the need that is out there, the demand that is out there, and the number of service providers. Could you help us, Dean Miner, just frame this conversation in terms of how AI can be applied in the mental health care space and the pieces of that puzzle you are specifically going to be focusing on at RAISE? Thank you. Yes, I think there are several ways that come to mind, and I know that our other guests are going to have more to say about that uh, based upon their areas of expertise and the work they're doing. For example, um, a person who is meeting with a mental health, behavioral health professional, either a psychologist, um, a nurse, a psychiatrist, uh, that encounter may be 30 minutes, maybe 50 minutes. And then afterwards, the provider will typically write a note, uh, type a note, uh, describing the encounter. That may take an additional 10, 15, 20 minutes, if it's been a complicated encounter, perhaps even longer, to capture in writing, in the medical record, what's been discussed and the plan that's been agreed upon based upon the interaction with the patient. If we could do that in the background, if while the encounter was occurring, there was a note being prepared uh, based upon both, both voice recognition and transcription, as well as the application of, of AI to what was being uh, discussed during the encounter, and if then the provider immediately and the patient immediately after the encounter could view that note and say, well, now this is accurate, but this wasn't accurate, and could agree upon in real time uh, what was actually discussed, the plan that was actually agreed upon, that adds efficiency, it adds value, um, it adds accuracy and safety to, uh, to the documentation of the encounter. So that's one example, I think, of a good use. Now, where there are problems that could come in is, and I'm sure we're going to talk today about the use of, of bots related to, um, you know, related to interactions with patients. Is that a bad thing necessarily? Perhaps not. But I don't think that we should be looking at AI in any of its manifestations as somehow supplanting, displacing, or replacing a healthcare professional 
um, in the interaction with of that healthcare professional with a patient in real time. There are plenty of uses that can enhance the value of that interaction between a provider and a patient uh, without taking away that connection that, um, that I think is essential for the therapeutic process. And I think that's absolutely a concern for many that will end up with robots basically trying to help people and remove the human element altogether. I want to bring in Betsy here. Betsy Stade, uh, you've been researching this area for some time. Can you speak to the current demand for mental health services, especially over the past few years of the pandemic and the shortage of professionals in this space? I mean, how wide a gap are we talking about here? Yeah, thanks for this question. Um, I mean, things are bad. We're facing a mental health provider shortage in this country. Things are particularly bad in rural areas and in like underserved communities. Um, Most therapists you talk to will tell you that they're running a long wait list. And if you're, you know, plenty of listeners probably have tried to seek, find therapy themselves and have had a hard time doing it. We also know at the same time there have been these reports of increasing levels of mental illness kind of coinciding with the pandemic, increasing levels of depression, anxiety, suicidality, especially among teens. Um, And so these two things together, this is not a good picture, right? Mm -hmm. And we really are in dire need of like more mental health providers or more treatment options for folks. And how would you describe the landscape of new AI tools that are coming in to try to support this need and fill that gap and provide a new service? Is it a land rush? Are there a ton of them coming in? Is it starting to trickle? Yeah, I mean... This is sort of, I think, especially this year with sort of what we saw with ChatGPT exploding and like AI exploding, um, there's been sort of a rush of interest in this space. There have been plenty of apps in this space for a while, um, uh, like mental health focused apps. But my perspective and from, you know, what I've been hearing from um, startup founders and stuff who who reach out, like there's certainly been this rush of interest in the mental health space recently. Um, so I think it's certainly taking off. And we also want to think about, um, you know, when tech interest rushes in, this is really exciting. It's really exciting to have lots of venture capital interest coming into an area. We also want to be cautious, right? Because as you know, we've been talking about in the show already, like, um, you know, mental health is a is a realm where we have to move cautiously, people's lives are at stake. And so we want to think about also, that this maybe is not necessarily an area in which to like move fast and break things. Which is a mantra we've heard many times. Right. Uh, Dean Miner, you've compared the introduction of generative AI to life-changing inventions like the printing press, like the internet. You are not alone in making those comparisons. We see that promise. Could you talk about how you see this technology truly revolutionizing the world of mental health care? Well, I think I, I, and I think all of us are just learning in real time what the capabilities of large language models, generative AI are. And in fact, we have large language models available today, uh, ChatGPT, BARD, a variety of others. Uh, we're going to see other representations of information be brought into the generative AI space as well, images, uh, sounds, and that opens a whole new uh, set of possibilities. What I've been most impressed by, and I'm learning in real time just like all of us are, is the ability of these large language models to assimilate information from many different sources and to provide a coherent, 
by and large accurate, although notably in some cases not accurate, assimilation of information into knowledge. And so typing a simple query into a large language model about a disease, about a treatment, about understanding a mechanism of how a drug or a therapy is working uh, generates a, a response that typically offers a lot of insights, much more than could be gleaned in a reasonable period of time from doing a simple Google search, for example. That's the potential. Um, the downside, of course, is that that there are well-known hallucinations. Uh, these models were trained on data typically from a couple of years ago, and data and information continue to evolve very quickly. The technology will rapidly catch up to that. And so the opportunity, the way it, for example, may impact the way we educate the next generation of physicians and of scientists, uh, we're only beginning to consider that. I think in the world of mental health, we, we've talked about some of the examples of responsible application. And, and you know, the question of is, are, are these large language models, is AI going to replace practitioners or providers? It's useful to remember that we've been using other forms of AI, what are called neural networks and other uh, analytic AI techniques in fields like radiology for many, many years. And when neural networks were introduced to interpreting radiology imaging studies, there were people who said, oh, we're not going to need radiologists anymore. Well, guess what? We still need radiologists more than ever. But the AI has helped radiologists to be more accurate, to be more efficient, and to give them an opportunity to spend time doing other things, like interact with other physicians, other healthcare providers, and understanding what the best studies are uh, to be ordered on a patient, as well as in explaining those patient those studies to patients. So we already have an example yeah. that, say, five years ago was thought was going to put people out of business, and it really hasn't done that. We are talking this morning about the use of artificial intelligence in mental health care with Lloyd Minor, the dean of the Stanford University School of Met Medicine, and Betsy Stade, a clinical psychologist and incoming postdoctoral researcher also at Stanford. And what about you? Are you a therapist or psychologist? How do you see AI transforming your work? Or have you used a mental health app with an AI component? We want to hear about it. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens in for Alexis Madrigal. We'll be right back with more guests after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens in for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking this morning about artificial intelligence being used in the field of mental health care where there is so much need. We are bringing on now to join us in this conversation Manuel Mandal, the founder and CEO of Ellipsis Health, and Jody Halpern, psychiatrist, professor of bioethics and the chancellor's chair, University of California, Berkeley. Jody, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us, Manuel. Thanks for joining us here in the studio. Nice to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. Manuel, why don't we start with hearing a little bit about what Ellipsis Health does and how you're using artificial intelligence to bring a solution to market? Yeah, I mean, our goal for for Ellipsis uh, back in 2017 uh, was to create the vital sign to measure mental health. The same way we measure physical health, you you have your blood pressure cuff um, for, for blood pressure. You have a thermometer for temperature. Uh, we needed to have an instrument that can actually measure mental health, starting with depression and anxiety. And the whole idea started um, for, for a bunch of family reasons, as well as the fact that it takes 11 years from the time you show symptoms to getting care. And I'm going to stop you there for a moment, because I did read that the family reasons you're mentioning, your your mother was actually very depressed and not diagnosed for a long time. Uh, that's correct. She has severe depression and, uh, you know, for, for a long time. Um, um, we have had uh, this this lack of understanding, you know, what is depression? What is anxiety? Uh, and, and when people are in a funk, they're not able to raise their hands and say, you know what, I am going through something, right? So for a mom's, ca- for a mom's case, I was sitting with her during her case management call, right? These case managers are incredible human beings, tasked to do some fantastic tasks, but when they don't have the right instruments to be able to help a patient and a member, you know, then, then you have someone like my mom losing 11 years of her life, right? Somebody who's a kid who's 12 or 11 doing the same thing. So Not having the words to speak about it in the right way. And so your tool then comes in and listens to the voice and listens to the words and helps uh, therapists diagnose how depressed someone is? Yeah, so let's go a little bit of the basics, right? The way we have trained our algorithm are based on FDA-approved instruments and how a clinician does their assessment. Right. This is not a consumer tool. This is a clinical decision support tool, and it's like a co-pilot. So when you're having a conversation with a primary care provider, a nurse, a case manager, right, it's actually in the background after having the consent of the patient and member. So when it when a voice comes through, and it's a natural dialogue, it's a conversational dialogue, the algorithms are trained to actually hear and listen to the dialogue just like a clinical uh, clinician would listen to. Right, so in a few minutes, is able to do the assessments and a lot of the things that uh, that Dean Miner mentioned, looking at note taking or summarization, things of that sort. So, in, in all of a sudden, in real time, you have skilled uh, clinicians here to every single encounter, right, to do the assessments, making it easier for case managers, nurses, providers, and then triaging, right. Where should someone like my mom go, who's got severe, versus where should someone like my, let's say, sister go, who's got mild to moderate. Right? So that's what we do as Ellipsis. 
And so this is one of those examples of the technology working hand in hand with a human person, um, not taking that person out of the equation at this point. You know, let's go to a tweet. Noel has written in, isn't the problem a lack of connection with people? Maybe some mentally ill people don't like dealing with humans and would rather use AI, but that won't solve the societal malaise. And Pamela writes, I am completely opposed to this absurd idea of robots taking over therapy sessions. The problem is that we humans are supposed to give the state 3,000 unpaid hours of our time after we pass all of our coursework for a marriage and family therapist license. This limits the field to rich people or people who have a spouse that can support them for the three years it takes to accomplish this. That is the problem. So pay us a living wage during these 3,000 hours so we humans can be therapists. Uh, A lot of questions and a lot of concerns here about robots sort of taking over in this space or artificial intelligence taking over in this space. Jody, let's go to you with some of these concerns that we're hearing from people as they write in. Thank you, Priya. And also, I want to say what Ellipsis is doing and what Mr. Mandel's describing is very different and very needed compared to therapy bots where there's no human involved. You you emphasize that, Priya, where there's no access to a human at all. Um, So that's what you're asking me to address. Let me address that. Um, first of all, I think that there, so there's a, there's a huge amount of investment right now in for-profit companies that will, um, provide bots that will be the only access that you'll have. And they usually actually, they usually have a, a kind of emergency escalation options for people that are able to be assertive. As Mr. Mandal described, sometimes when you're very depressed, you actually can't assert and escalate as needed. So um, we're addressing now the private companies that are surging to create mental health bots. And what happens when that completely um, replaces, for many people, access immediately to mental health? So first of all, you are right, Priya, that there's a huge shortage of mental health access in the world. So I am not against at all. As an ethics professor and professor of technology ethics, we basically work with AI developers to think about the issues upstream. It's important for us to use all the AI we can to get all the help we can to people in the world. And mental health is in a crisis. So one area where AI therapy bots can be extremely useful is the forms of therapy that are based on essentially CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be very effective for depression, anxiety, and panic disorder, but which have for 30 years now been therapies that people can do alone. For 30 years, we've had proven results of people doing them with pen and paper journals on their own, with some guidance from a real therapist. And so there are forms of bots that should be formed, I think, and companies that should exclusively work with people who've already have a background therapist or someone who's diagnosed them and built an alliance, and they can use them in between and take the huge crunch of pressure off the mental health services, just as um, Dean Minor described administrative load. So there's lots of uses of bots. But what concerns me is when we use the other form of therapy is based on emotional relationships and empathy, which is my field. And my question is, do we want the deepest human emotional dependence on emotional relationships with bots to be run by for-profit companies? And that's where I can raise several ethical issues. 
You know, let me bring Betsy into this conversation, and then I would love to talk with you further about some of those ethical issues. But Betsy, there seems to be a delineation that we're talking about here. Administrative tasks and certain sorts of diagnostic tools that artificial intelligence could really come in and support the need, but not the human therapy, one-on-one sort of traditional talk therapy that we know. People seem to be resistant to saying, let's put any artificial intelligence into that space. Could you speak to this sort of divide and where you see AI being useful? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great question. And, you know, intelligent people have very different opinions about these types of topics. I think in terms of where I see it, where I see it is that we're at a space where not just is there a mental health provider shortage, but we also know that we have evidence-based treatments for certain conditions like depression, anxiety, insomnia, PTSD, Many of these are sort of cognitive behavioral therapy, like um, what we've been discussing, but other forms of evidence-based therapies. And we know that these evidence-based therapies are really hard for people to access. There aren't enough providers trained in them. Um, Oftentimes, like insurance reimbursement is really difficult. And so I actually have quite a bit of optimism about the potential use of AI to sort of disseminate these types of evidence-based treatments. Um, Not just disseminate it, but like, for example, some of the things we've been talking about, if a person has insomnia or OCD, there are certain, especially like in the case of OCD, certain types of therapy are actually going to like cause harm. We know that from the science, um, unless you get sort of the the right targeted type of treatment. This is, you know, I do research in the PTSD space as well. This is also true. Plenty of people end up going to therapy for long periods of time, getting therapy that doesn't actually help their condition. So I actually tend to think about this in terms of the, the potential for AI to not just get more people more treatment, but to get more people the right type mm. of targeted treatment that is actually going to help them get better and not just kind of keep them the same or even potentially um, have them get worse because those are potential options, things that do happen in therapy as well. And Manuel, obviously, you're an entrepreneur. You're going out and you're testing your product in the marketplace. You're you're in trials in various places. Tell us about the response that you're hearing and how that seems to be working. Are people embracing it? Are they scared of it? How is it going in that clinical space? Yeah, and I, I think I, I think in minor you talked about responsible, safe, equitable way. Professor Halpern, you talk about the ethical frameworks, right? The the measuring health outcomes and and also keeping in mind the human rights, uh, justice, and fairness, right? So, for us, the approach has been exactly that, right? We've we're not a new company. We've been around for about six and a half, seven years. Uh, we've we've been sort of under the radar for a long time because validation and studies and publications are key for any company like ours. So for us, when we go to, and we're working with some of the largest systems in the, in the US right now, from, from, from peers to providers, um, and I can tell you, when you go with that kind of transparency, when you go with sort of uh, getting consent, uh, that helps. So for us to be able to be a co-pilot, helping sort of um, getting the burden lower for really a provider to work more efficiently and say, okay, what's happening here? How can I actually have more empathy, right? That creates a bond. Healthcare is sacred, right? Healthcare is about trust, right? It it creates that bond. So for us, I think that as we as we have gone working with sort of the biggest names in healthcare, uh, that those kind of values have helped us. And Jody, let's come back to you. Would you want to outline for us a bit those concerns that you mentioned earlier uh, about the use of AI, not in those necessarily the diagnostic tools as much or the administrative work, but in other places? 
Yes, I can pick up on what um, Manuel just said about empathy and the bond, because that's what I'm most concerned about. Basically, the more vulnerable a person is, and when you're uh, suffering from anxiety, depression, you're vulnerable, the more that we will feel trust and form deeply emotional relationships if we are put in a position or manipulated to feel it. And that's extremely important because people have said, oh, we won't really develop close relationships with AI. But when AI is market, let me start at the beginning. We talked about, we're all on the same page, um, Betsy, Dean Minor, all of us, that there are forms of evidence-based therapies that once somebody is hooked up with a real therapist, they can do on their own with AI bots in very successful ways using CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. The other stream of therapy is based on forming a very deep emotional dependence on a therapist. That psychodynamic form of therapy is meant for people to feel the very deepest feelings of love and trust. When that goes awry, it can go seriously awry, and psychotherapists are trained to help from that going awry. We know that when there is hallucinating of AI machines, as Dr. Uh, Dean Miner brought up, or other kind of um, glitches, we've had some terrible cases already. We have a man in Belgium who was, it wasn't actually a psychotherapy bot, but it was a chat GBT precursor that was being used that way by the man. And he developed a close love relationship with the bot and committed suicide as the bot told him to, because he believed that would save the world from climate change. Mm. We've seen it with Replica, the romance and friendship bot, um, and, and where people have, similar things have happened and people with eating disorders using mental health bots. And my key point here is that we live in a country where there's very little regulation compared to Europe and the rest of the world. And these companies can launch, I'm not talking again about the kind of rigor that someone like Mr. Um, Manuel is bringing to his company, which is very different, but there are a bunch of companies launching without any regulatory model, and they're launching these emotional dependence-based therapies, especially to children and in the schools. And I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, Harvard's digital business newsletter wrote about one uh, very successful right now new mental health bot, that their business model is fantastic because what they're doing is they're giving the psychodynamic therapy bot, it has CBT, but also interpersonal psychodynamic therapy in the bot, they're giving it to schools which are in desperate need of mental health care and have very low budgets, basically for free and to young adults for for free. And the, the, the business model, as described in, in by Har the Harvard newsletter, is that this will be a sticky technology that children or young adults will become used to when they have a need to talk to someone or they're feeling concerned about things, they'll get used to turning to a bot rather than a person. And that will be a convenient habit uh, throughout life and become a big customer base. And to me, there's so much irony in this because the mental health crisis in children, which I'm internationally involved in trying to address, is definitely related to um, the lack of social contact in real life. Right. This is um, what we, we keep hearing, right? That right. much of the depression and anxiety that we're seeing, particularly among our young adults, is because of the enormous amount of interaction that we have with our screens. You know, in a, right. in a related... I'm, I'm going to... Um, 
I'm going to come back to you in just a second, but you know, I just wanted to go to one of the comments that has come in. That's it's related. It's not exactly the same, but it's related. Um, and a listener has written in saying, "You using artificial intelligence to manage mental health puts a person at risk for privacy issues because you're doing stuff online. It's being recorded and it's accessible by someone else who can use that info for reasons not supportive of the patient. And also, artificial intelligence can't be held responsible for outcomes of any treatment via artificial intelligence or any other consequences that come out of that mental health management. Who is going to be held accountable for what direction that artificial space gives a person who's going through mental health issues? So many concerns here about how to responsibly use AI. I'm going to go back to Dean Miner here. Um, Dean, would you share a little of your thoughts on these various aspects, AI tools being marketed to children, privacy concerns? Who is responsible for any negative outcomes from treatment? Well, thank you, Priya. I think the listener brings up a really important point. Privacy is definitely at the top of the list of concerns as AI become, becomes more and more commonly used. And even privacy in ways that we weren't aware in the past could be a privacy issue. So today, uh, as large language models incorporate more and more data, a simple query that might not necessarily have any patient identifying information in it as large language models start to bring in more social media information, a simple query could lead to, to the identification of a person. So I think as we have done in the past, in, including the development of the laws now, you know, more than a decade ago that protect patient privacy in the pre-AI world, we're going to have to lean in with everyone, policymakers, those who are AI experts, those the public, to lean in and decide what's acceptable, what's not acceptable in terms of the applications of technology and the, the uh, protection of privacy. But it's at the, at the top of my list, I think the top of everyone's list is being a concern. Uh, Manuel Mandela, how are you managing privacy concerns with the work that you do? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think yeah, it goes back to sort of trust. It goes back to sort of feeling people feeling safe. So consent is key, right? And, and I think just to just to uh, for us the way we build this company sort of blog by blog being very mechanical about it. We have always had providers involved from day one. My co-founder Dr. Arta was a provider. We've got a few other clinicians, full-time clinicians. Uh, you know, in terms of the so technology aspects of, of our operations, we have state-of-the-art de-identification processing, right? De-identification. Correct. So mm -hmm. the the algorithms have no way of understanding who this voice belongs to, right? And the user has the right to delete their data. Right. The power is with the people, not with the companies. Right. All right. We're going to have much more after the break. We are talking about the use of artificial intelligence in mental health care with Manol Mandal, the founder and CEO of Ellipsis Health, Jody Halpern, a psychiatrist and professor of bioethics at UC Berkeley, Betsy Stade, clinical psychologist and incoming postdoc researcher at Stanford, and Dean Lloyd Minor, the dean of Stanford University School of Medicine. We want to hear from you, too. We want to hear about your experiences with a mental health app. Have you used any of them? Do you know if it has an AI component? And what's your experience been like? Would the use of AI in a mental health app make you more or less likely to use an app? And are you a therapist or a psychologist? How do you see AI transforming your work? Give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Priya David-Clemens in for Alexis Madrigal. We will be right back after a short break. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to KQED Forum. We're talking about the use of artificial intelligence in mental health care. We have a caller on the line, Tony from Oakland. Tony, thanks for being with us this morning. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I, I So my, I had a comment and a, and a question, and my, my comment was, so some years ago um, I was doing clinical research, and we ended up doing a very short study at the uh, VA in San Francisco, and it was for insomnia, sleep disturbance, and, and stuff like that. And, and I think they were trying to figure the link to PTSD. Um, and so we had very high engagement initially, which when it was sort of online um, or just kind of through email, and we started slipping, you know, participants were dropping off um, as they were being required to come in and, and into the, the, the clinic and fill out paperwork and answer questions. Um, and, you know, we asked one of our participants, you know, who is sort of you know, having trouble making appointments, you know, how, how can we make this easier for you? Um, and this individual said, you know, that the coming into the clinic was sort of embarrassing and they felt shameful um, because, you know, they felt like they get, you know, treated poorly by, by practitioners there. Um, and I'm wondering if there's not something there um, where the AI can help bridge the gap because we seem to have a very difficult challenge ahead of us with our veterans, with the folks in the military, is just getting care for them in general, but also getting them to, to, to come to the appointments, getting them, um, you know, uh, 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 comfortable. And I'm wondering if the, the, the AI like this can't help bridge the gap um, to, to get folks a little more comfortable uh, with the idea of, of seeking treatment um, you know, I, I know that's a huge uh, bridge to gap, but I'm wondering if there are any plans to bring this to the VAs or, or what if, if it's heading in that direction. Tony, thank you so much for your call. And I'm going to toss this over to Betsy. Betsy, would you talk about the any cases you've seen or applications you've seen to help people get comfortable with coming in for care and also maybe improving the quality of care that they receive? Yeah, certainly. Um, and Tony, thanks for bringing in your experience. It's I think that really like adds to the richness of this discussion. Um, I mean, I, I think that there's there are a few things to consider here. You know, one is this idea, yeah, that some people are just not comfortable with it, you know seeking in person mental health care, and that may continue to be true for folks. And I think. The, um, those are the cases where, you know, kind of the advent of like video therapy during COVID was huge for a lot of these folks. Um, you know, phone call therapy has existed kind of for a while. Um, and then, yeah, certainly the advent of AI and, you know, possibilities for individuals to kind of be able to seek access to treatment in ways that, you know, where they are able to be comfortable um, is certainly huge. Um, there's, you know, there's quite a bit of work that's done by mental health practitioners and researchers to try and 
make people more comfortable. But um, we can kind of think about maybe a spectrum of different needs. Um, One thing that kind of sometimes surprises folks when we talk about this is that there are people, you know, one of the common criticisms of like AI mental health applications is this idea that um, people don't want to talk to computers. But then there's actually been some research on this topic. And there are some people who say, I would actually be feel more comfortable disclosing my problems like to a computer or to an AI system. So I think we want to be thinking about different types of needs. At the same time, there are certain conditions. And, you know, I think lots of folks, you know, here could we could talk about this more in depth, but there are certain conditions where you may really need in-person care or um, it may be important to kind of challenge the person to come in. So I'm thinking, for example, in some instances with PTSD or social anxiety disorder, we might not necessarily want to encourage a person to necessarily stay away from people. There might be some clinical benefit to actually coming in physically. Betsy, thank you. I also want to welcome the listeners in our Discord community, which is new and has started up. We have a couple of people writing in on Discord. Vicky has written, I feel like there's a lot of useful room for AI to supplement what human therapists and patients can't do well today, have incredible memory and recall, and be able to synthesize or draw insights based on patterns, provide a different type of support by being available for small requests at all hours, and to be very easy to share with as humans can be hard to open up to. How might we make this interaction feel like a partnership, smooth and helpful? And then Mama Tora Cat on Discord has written, what do we need to do to get more human mental health care providers? I have a friend who has had to wait for over two years to find professional for their child and the cost was not an issue. It was availability. That is a big question um, that is probably beyond the scope of everything we can do in the show today. I'd like to turn back, if we could, for a moment to Jody. Jody, the question of equity and access to mental health care comes up over and over again. There are people who say, you know, if you're rich, you can get health care. And if you're not, you can't. And if you come from a different cultural background than your mental health care provider, you may have trouble sharing your experiences and your needs in a way that that healthcare provider can hear. Is there a way for artificial intelligence to help in this space? Well, I was with you. I think it can. I think it also um, creates risks in the space, both. Mm. I think that, um, uh, again, I mean, the biggest issue with equity in mental health is not just that it's unequal, but that the the majority of people in need from every background are not getting access, which is where I think AI can really help. That's what I've been talking about, why we could use it for, I'm sort of aligned with what Betsy said, we can use it for so many um, effective evidence-based treatments that people can do whenever they want in between um, some kind of meeting by phone. I think phone therapy with a real person is as, can be as effective as in-person therapy, but some kind of idea that there's a person that they can connect with at some point. Um, but um, I think that the equity issues are well known to be problematic with algorithmic bias and, and the database that we have that a lot of the mental health bots are being trained on. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, I think the issues of people feeling comfortable with social anxiety and just shame and issues are huge. So I think that there are a lot of people who might not feel comfortable with other people who will feel comfortable talking to bots. I think the areas in terms of equity um, and inclusion. Um, we have some good research that Black women feel better with Black women, human therapists. Um, we don't have enough data about how underserved populations like Black women will feel with AI bots, but we need to put money into researching that. 
I think we we know that um, rural communities don't have anywhere near enough access to mental health. Poor rural communities will have more access through AI. Those are all benefits. Um, but I think that the big issue, and we wrote about this some years ago, um, is that these, again, my issue is not with the technology, which I think has enormous pr promise to be used in conjunction with humans to expand mental health. My issue has to do with our for-profit system in the U.S. without regulation and marketing. And um, th th what we wrote about is pricing. And we're very concerned that these bots will first be given for free, but then we'll quickly price it, we'll uh, price out people that might be economically disadvantaged. So the, and the other op thing that could happen is that if they, that basically if humans are desired by people, we need empirical research to see how people really do with AI alone versus not. Um, but if it really is desirable for people to have some human empathic relationship, as many of us think it will be, maybe that will become, it already is ex exorbitantly expensive. And so it'll only be the wealthy that will have that. And then everyone else will have a bot. Yeah. So issues of equity are are rife. Thank you, Jody. Manuel, talk to us a little bit about how you're addressing these issues of, of equity and access with Ellipsis. Look, we cannot ignore background, reading levels, education levels, cultural uh, perspectives, right? And I think the first step of many mental health care pathways for, for, for individuals to seek help and be referred to their appropriate health care services. Um, and I think thinking about sort of how we have sort of tasked that, um, uh, you know, solving the problem we're trying to solve here. I think the our team has clinicians, has folks from different ethnic backgrounds, different skill sets. Our investors include anywhere from tech investors to to impact investors to gangels, for example, right? So it's, it's a spectrum of people who are involved in making sure, again, I think doc, what Professor Halpern talked about, human rights, justice, and fairness, looking at the data set that we have with consent that we've collected from different backgrounds, right? And one of the things that Ellipsis Health has done really well that we are proud of is about validation. We have shown, and we have about nine publications right now, and there, there's one about to come out, that our our um, algorithms, which is a clinical decision support tool now, is actually robust and valid across different demographics, right? Uh, it's, it's valid across uh, different socioeconomic brackets. So again, it goes back to our point about how we have thought about building this company with clinicians in mind in place and just peer-reviewed publications that actually show that our algorithms can across be applicable whether you're from San Francisco to or to Houston, Texas, or New York, right? So that's what we have shown. It's really important for, for AI companies to be able to do that, especially in healthcare. Thank you, Manuel. Adrian has written in, the shortage in service providers means we need to find new ways to reach those in most need. For example, my lab used machine learning algorithms to adapt messages to help people with depression increase their physical activity. This was done with patients from low income backgrounds who are underrepresented underrepresented in innovative research. It was not directly supported by humans, but resulted in higher activity. It's an example of a tool that can be integrated into care. We also need to blend AI tools with a human touch. It's not an either or, but figuring out how to provide the right help and how to blend human support with advances in technology that are not going away. This is very, um, this is the theme we have been talking about all morning here. Let's go to the call. Um, we've got Jamie, who's on the phone from Oakland. Jamie, thanks for joining us. 
Oh yes, thanks for having me. Um, I just I, mean, I just want to express concern about the implementation of AI and mental health. I'm a clinician myself, and I think I find in working for HMOs um, that new technologies are usually used to um, cut costs, to increase efficiencies, and to uh, try and bring more productivity out of staff. They're not generally used to supplement good treatment. Um, so I think we've got to be careful when we consider integration of new technology into mental health care. Um, you know, Kaiser has provided, for example, referrals to uh, chatbot mental health apps, especially during uh, mental health uh, workers' strike last year. And uh, there wasn't a lot of success on the patient side or uh, positive reactions to that. But meanwhile, uh, companies could say we're providing access to mental health care because we're referring you to an app. Um, so I think, you know, it is already happening where uh, there's an intent to replace the expensive uh, cost of salaries with, you know, AI-driven bots. Um, and and the outcomes haven't been great. And there's more research that needs to be done so we could figure out a positive way to use them. So I just, I just want to make that comment and caution. Jamie, I appreciate that. Again, you know, this concern for the human aspect of all of this. Uh, Dean Miner, I'd like to come to you with this. You know, as we've been talking about AI and healthcare, there is this concern of labor disruption, of people losing their jobs, of work being devalued. And mental health care workers across the Bay have been organizing a few notable strikes in recent years, pushing for better working conditions and compensation. How big is the risk that this technology could cost people their jobs in the near future or perhaps undermine organized labor the next time contracts are up for renegotiation? Well, first, as has been stated, we definitely need more people in all areas of mental and behavioral health. Uh, And what we're trying to do as, as a medical school, as an academic medical center, is to increase the pathways for training people, to increase the level of interest among our students and trainees in pursuing careers in mental health. So I think that that's a first statement that needs to be made very strongly. Now, we've seen other examples of the implication of technology and its impact on the labor force. And we can learn from those examples. I, I mentioned briefly earlier about when when we introduced AI to interpreting radiology images, the thought was we're going to displace radiologists or others involved in, in the specialty of radiology. We haven't done that. Uh, our need for radiologists is just as great as it was before. But I think we absolutely have to be attentive, as we've been discussing, about how the AI gets applied. I would hope that what it does, and I think it has the potential to do this, and that is it makes careers in mental health more rewarding. It makes the work of mental health practitioners um, less onerous in terms of the types of work they have to do, not related directly to providing patient care. And it connects the mental health worker more directly with the patient because a lot of what is consuming time today is being handled by the AI in a more efficient and effective way. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dean Miner. Uh, Jody, let's come back to you for another question here about where you really come down at the end of the day. You have concerns about how AI is being implemented. Do you feel that the benefits are going to outweigh those concerns? Well, I think that it depends on us, what we do. And I think that um, we started, um, co-founded two things at Berkeley, the Kavli Center for Ethics, Science, and the Public, and the Berkeley Group for Ethics and Regulation of Innovative Technology. And I've been working with AI um, scientists, neuroscientists, and others for many years so that they think early in their research careers about 
ethics. And, and um, I think that we, we need regulatory structures in the United States. We are way behind. We, are, we have a history of not regulating uh, innovative technology until disasters happen. Um, and I think that, um, and I'm not really worried about disaster here. I'm not trying to scare us, but I think that um, we need, we don't have an FDA for AI um, mental health bots. And one of the issues is a lot of them are in the wellness space and not in the actual medical space. In the medical space, we have ways of um, having clinical trials that's been mentioned earlier and having research based to prove treatments, improve safety and efficacy. We don't have that in the wellness space where a lot of these mental health bots reside. And I've already said that I think they can help enormously with every kind of therapy that essentially a person knows they're doing um, with themselves and a smart bot. So all the CBT and other things people can do for behavioral change, for anxiety, et cetera, all the, all the things that were mentioned um, could be really useful. But the interpersonal therapies or the medical care and giving a difficult diagnosis, which is what I've studied through the years, how people deal with grief and suffering and what clinical empathy, we've proven the efficacy of this over and over again in medicine. Those issues that are psychodynamic, psychological, where people's deepest feelings are involved, we, having this in the, quote, wellness space, bots take that over, especially with young people and children, because it's a huge commercial opportunity with no regulation. That's the thing that I want us to pay attention to. So I think we need, I wish we had something like the, the FDA, frankly, yeah. um, for all of this, but we don't. And we've written about other regulatory measures we might be able to take. But I think everybody on this call is concerned about that. And um, doing uh, Dean Miner's group and everyone else is doing important work in that space. And we are at Berkeley at the Kavli Center for Ethics, Science, and the Public. Thank you so much, Jody. Betsy, if you were to get out your crystal ball and look ahead 10 years, 20 years, where do you see the use of AI in mental health care? Ooh, uh, big question. Um, short time to answer. Short time. I think like best case scenario, there's a potential here that this could really like solve our mental health crisis and, you know, fill provider shortages, um, improve treatments, help a lot of people. Um, but, you know, as we've discussed, lots needs to be done for us to get there. All right. Manuel, same question to you. Same short time frame. I think for us, uh, the goal has been the same for the last few years. Solve the assessment problem first. You cannot manage what you can't measure, right? Ellipsis Health has created that vital sign, the new standard that's been validated over and over again. It took us six years of validation, and we are ready. And we're the, going where in the future? I think we're heading into better triaging, uh, reducing the, the gaps and shortage of labor here, and be really there for our, our frontline workers also. All right. Thank you all, our guests. We really appreciate it. We have been talking this morning about the use of artificial intelligence in mental health care with Manuel Mondal, the founder and CEO of Ellipsis Health, Jody Halper and the psychiatrist and professor of bioethics at California's, uh, the University of California at Berkeley, Betsy Stade, a clinical psychologist with Stanford, and Lloyd Miner, the dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. Thank you so much to all our guests. I'm Priya David Clemens, in for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.